You're listening to Pigs in a Podcast, a podcast done K-Pig style, featuring interviews with your favorite new and classic pig artists. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? All right, well, welcome. Uh, we're going to be doing an interview here that I've been looking forward to doing for a long time, and the song was Perfect Choice. Uh, she's an old, old friend uh, of mine. Uh, I'm not hearing him very well. Well, I can hear you. <laughs> so that voice you just heard was Jan Haworth. Jan uh, went to UCLA Art School, and then from there she went over to England to school, and uh, at some point got involved with the Beatles, and... Uh, and uh, the, the, that's what this whole story is about is Jan's trip to England and lived there for many years as, as a working artist so Jan uh, we'll try and do this and hopefully you can hear me okay uh, at least enough to answer questions and how you doing um, if you just ask me how I'm doing I'm doing very well <laughs> bright sunny day here I envy you uh, the proximity to the Pacific Ocean though we had a great trip to Santa Cruz recently, and uh, it, the the scent of of the Pacific is still in my head. <laughs> well, good because uh, it's it's still here. <laughs> it's in, still here in, on purpose. Uh, uh, let me ask you this, Jan. Um, what prompted you to move to uh, England after finishing up at UCLA? Um, if if you just asked me uh, what prompted me to move to England, which I think is what I heard. Um, I uh, went over to see my father, who was working on uh, a film called The Longest Day in France. Um, and uh, I was a half-term ahead because I'd skipped a half-term in high school, so I thought I could take off from UCLA um, uh, for a little time. Um, so I went to visit him and to have my first um, kind of uh, moments in Europe. Um, and on my way back to UCLA, after having been in France for uh, six months, um, I stopped in England, um, really, to look at the the source of my art history um, uh, course in UCLA, and um, and then um, just as soon as I was there, literally when I stepped off the train, I thought, mm, I wonder what I have to do to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of madly went round the universities, which were all on uh, holiday, saying. Hey, I have a high uh, average of grades. Uh, how about I come to your university? <laughs> I didn't really realize that things weren't done that way there, that you had to apply kind of years in advance, etc. Et um, but uh, mercifully, the Courtauld Institute and um, the uh, the Slade said, uh, "Yeah, I could I could fetch up there and do some studying, do some painting, and whatever I wanted." And um, that was a, a great plan. And so. Um, I stayed, um, and I worked out that uh, if I only spent a half a crown a day on food, I probably um, I probably could stay quite a long time, <laughs> which ended up being thirty five years. Thirty five years you stayed there. That's that's an amazing, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so when uh, did the Beatles come into your life? To steal a phrase there. Oh well, and by the way, I can hear you now. Um, yeah, we traded uh, traded microphones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
Uh, well, Peter and I um, knew somebody called Bob Freeman who did some of the early photographs of the Beatles, the ones uh, that you see when they're in the black, um, what the English call polo necks and we call turtlenecks. Um, and uh, he he knew that they were going to be playing in Luton. I believe it was their second concert uh, near to London. Luton really isn't London. Um, and he said, oh, the boys are coming down and they don't know the city and you guys know the clubs. How about taking them round? And it, it kind of was a, a thing like he was palming them off because I don't think he came with us after that. We went to the concert and then we went back to their hotel, which was in... Um, uh, right in Holborn, I think, and um, and then we just uh, started, you know, in the direction of various clubs, um, and that was '63, um, as I remember it. And then, you know, it was all the way till '67 before the the cover was done. So we, they were kind of in and out of our consciousness and in and, in and out of our lives. I mean, our gallery dealer Robert Fraser, who really should be, um, you know, cited as the person who brought the whole action of Sergeant Pepper to Peter and I. Um, it, Robert showed Yoko Ono and uh, John Lennon and uh, was friends with the Beatles and so forth. So it was it was a kind of um, circle of um, events and private views and stuff that we, we knew them on and off and saw them on and off uh, in that period. Well, I remember in 1963, you came back to California, and that was the last time I saw you. We went out and had a meal, and you told myself and Leon, another friend of Jan's from those days, about this band, the Beatles, and we had never heard of them, and we went, oh, great, yeah, that's terrific, and then about six months later, it exploded, and we went, Jan's friends with those guys, and of course, you <laughs> became a superhero to everybody in that neighborhood, for sure, so that was the last time Jan and I talked, I, I found her on the internet about, oh, three months ago, and we spoke, and she agreed to uh, do a couple of interviews, she ended up at, for you in Santa Cruz today, pick up the copy of The Good Times, the cover story is about Jan and Sergeant Pepper album cover, which then we'll skip four or five years. You're listening to Pigs in a Podcast, a podcast done K-Pig style, featuring interviews with your favorite new and classic pig artists. What would you think if I sang out it too? Would you stand up and walk out on me? All right, well, welcome. Uh, we're going to be doing an interview here that I've been looking forward to doing for a long time, and the song was Perfect Choice. Uh, she's an old, old friend uh, of mine. Uh, I'm not hearing him very well. Well, I can hear you. <laughs> so that voice you just heard was Jan Haworth. Jan uh, went to UCLA Art School, and then from there she went over to England to school, and uh, at some point got involved with the Beatles, and... Uh, and uh, the, the, that's what this whole story is about is Jan's trip to England and lived there for many years as, as a working artist so Jan uh, we'll try and do this and hopefully you can hear me okay uh, at least enough to answer questions and how you doing um, if you just ask me how I'm doing I'm doing very well <laughs> bright sunny day here I envy you uh, the proximity to the Pacific Ocean though we had a great trip to Santa Cruz recently, and uh, it, the the scent of 
of the Pacific is still in my head. <laughs> well, good, because uh, it's, it's still here. <laughs> it's in, still here in, on purpose. Uh, uh, let me ask you this, Jan. Um, what prompted you to move to uh, England after finishing up at UCLA? Um, if, if you just asked me uh, what prompted me to move to England, which I think is what I heard, um, I uh, went over to see my father, who was working on uh, a film called The Longest Day in France. Um, and uh, I was half-term ahead because I'd skipped a half-term in high school, so I thought I could take off from UCLA um, uh, for a little time. Um, so I went to visit him and to have my first um, kind of uh, moments in Europe. Um, and on my way back to UCLA, after having been in France for uh, six months, um, I stopped in England um, really to look at the the source of my art history um, uh course in UCLA, and um, and then um, just as soon as I was there, literally when I stepped off the train, I thought, hmm, I wonder what I have to do to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of madly went around the universities, which were all on uh, holiday, saying, hey, I have a high uh, average of grades. Uh, how about I come to your university? <laughs> I didn't really realize that things weren't done that way there, that you had to apply kind of years in advance, et cetera. Um, but uh, mercifully, the Courtauld Institute and um, the, uh, the Slade said, uh, yeah, I could, I could fetch up there and do some studying, do some painting and whatever I wanted, and um, that was a, a great plan. And so... Um, I stayed, um, and I worked out that uh, if I only spent a half a crown a day on food, I probably um, I probably could stay quite a long time, <laughs> which ended up being thirty five years. Thirty five years you stayed there. That's that's an amazing, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so when uh, did the Beatles come into your life? To steal a phrase there. Oh well, and by the way, I can hear you now. Um, yeah, we traded uh, traded microphones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, well, Peter and I um, knew somebody called Bob Freeman who did some of the early photographs of the Beatles, the ones uh, that you see when they're in the black, um, what the English call polo necks and we call turtlenecks. Um, and uh, he he knew that they were going to be playing in Luton. I believe it was their second concert uh, near to London. Luton really isn't London. Um, and he said, oh, the boys are coming down and they don't know the city and you guys know the clubs. How about taking them round? And it, it kind of was a, a thing like he was palming them off, because I don't think he came with us after that. We went to the concert, and then we went back to their hotel, which was in, um, uh, right in Holborn, I think. And um, and then we just uh, started, you know, in the direction of various clubs. Um, and that was 63, um, as I remember it. And then, you know, it was all the way till 67 before the, the cover was done. So we, they were kind of in and out of our consciousness and in, a, in and out of our lives. I mean, our gallery dealer, Robert Fraser, who really should be, um, you know, cited as the person who brought the whole action of Sergeant Pepper to Peter and I, um, it, Robert showed Yoko Ono and uh, John Lennon and uh, was friends with the Beatles and so forth. So it was, it was a kind of um, circle of um, events and private views and stuff that we... We knew them on and off and saw them on and off uh, in that period. Well, I remember in 1963, you came back to California, and that was the last time I saw you. We went out and had a meal, and you told myself and Leon, another friend of Jan's from those days, about this band. 
the Beatles. And <laughs> we had never heard of them. And we went, oh, great. Yeah, that's terrific. And then about six months later, it exploded. We went, Jan's friends with those guys. And of course, you <laughs> became a superhero to everybody in that neighborhood for sure. So that was the last time Jan and I talked. I, I found her on the internet about, oh, three months ago. And we spoke. And she agreed to uh, do a couple of interviews. She ended up at, for you in Santa Cruz today. Pick up the copy of The Good Times. The cover story is about Jan and Sergeant Pepper album cover, which then we'll skip four or five years and to the time that they contacted you about doing this. And all this time you've been a, had been a working artist, correct? Oh, sure. Yeah, I went to the Slade and um, I uh, got some work into a, an exhibition called Young Contemporaries, which launched a lot of careers. Um, it was a yearly show in London, um, and it certainly launched David Hockney and Ron Kitai and um, Alan Jones and Peter and lots of people. Um, so uh, that happened, and I had a show at the ICA um, uh, when I just turned 21, which was a, a big deal for me um, and a very lucky happening, um, and then was picked up by Robert Fraser. So I was I had my first one-man show the year before at Robert Fraser's, uh, the, the year before this, Sgt. Pepper cover. Um, so things were, were happening pretty fast for me, and it was a very young culture at that point. Um, post-war Britain was, was kind of ready for a fresh, adventurous take, and I think um, the Beatles were a part of that. I think of the Beatles as a product of that, not as the kind of driver of that. Um, and that goes kind of um, askance to, I think, some of the visions that people have of uh, the UK at that time. But living there was was a really amazing um, experience across the arts. I mean, taking hair styling and fashion and photography and filmmaking and all of that into the pool of the arts. Basically, I think... Um, all of that vibrancy fed the Beatles um, and and all of us. Um, so, you know, we we you know felt very much the the barriers coming down between what one considered to be high art and um, uh, ordinary art and pop art and all of those conventions. And um, and it was pretty much a big pool, which I think distinguishes it from the New York um, sort of pop art movement, uh, which was more focused in the visual arts. And so how did they find, how did they pick you? You, you had been friends with them, not like you have told me you weren't with them huh. all the time and you, were, you knew them, but you weren't best friends. But they, they somehow picked you and uh, your husband to, to, to do this album cover. Well, I, I think we, we kind of backed into it. Um, Robert Fraser had seen uh, a provisional cover that was done by a Dutch couple called Simon and Marika. Oh, The Fool. Yeah, The Fool. And now the, the cover was much more like um, Yellow Submarine kind of um, uh, animated sort of drawing. Um, and The Fool had done a, a treatment that I remember as a square cover, and I don't know if I was seeing, um, a, you know, a, a, a rendition of it. it. It's since been sort of shown in various places as a double uh, cover, kind of a cinemascope uh, shape, um, but I remember a square cover, and um, Robert didn't like it, and had, you know, said to um, uh, Paul that he felt that, it, you know, it ought to have a different kind of cover, having listened to the music, and um, I don't know who kind of supported The Fool within the Beatles or not, The Fool's cover, but anyway, um, Robert prevailed in his influence over Paul, um, and uh, 
said that he thought it would be interesting if Peter and I did it. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting that it, it was a couple that did it before, and then, you know, that the, the ball moved to a couple. Um, so it, it was a kind of interesting shift in the way uh, things were often done. It was done very much as a collaboration in that respect. Um, but Robert, Robert was, you know, one of those people that just had this, you know, amazing um, uh, insight into fine art. And, you know, he, he certainly never tried to influence the project at all as far as what the aesthetic was or what we intended to do, but he he made it happen, as it were. I mean, he uh, introduced the idea to Paul, he persuaded Paul, he brought Paul over to our studio um, so that we could talk about it, and we kind of brainstormed at that point, and then it just went from there. Um, so uh, I think, you know, he certainly... He, he certainly was a Svengali of the cover um, in that regard. And you had listened to the music, uh, you said, was it you who listened to her? It was the fool who heard it, or who heard the music from Well, her? no, Robert, Robert, I think, was closer to what was actually happening over at EMI, certainly closer than we were. I mean, we heard tapes um, at Paul's house, um, and uh, say three, maybe he went through three of them, and we heard the Sgt. Pepper um, uh, kind of build up, but they were still recording, because um, when we first met, it was February, March, well, February, actually, um, and um, so they were just into it. I mean, they only started recording it in January, so um, it was a long record, and, um, you know, our when we decided what the cover would look like, um, it, we hadn't heard that much of the music, so it was a little bit like doing a book cover and not reading the book. Um, I mean, had had I heard Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which I didn't hear till it was actually released, I would have wanted the sky to be black. Um, you know, things like that would have certainly come into the, <laughs> the story of it. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was it really was the Sergeant Pepper, um, you know, notion that drove the cover uh, rather than the full text of the the album. Um, yeah, that yeah. becomes pretty obvious once you've seen the album cover. Now, B, uh, EMI agreed to cover the cost of the album cover? Yes. Um, I, Robert negotiated all that. Peter and I were sort of protected from having to think about the money part of it. Um, uh, we both received, um, we received together um, 200 pounds, which is 100 for Peter and 100 for me. Um, and uh, there was a sentence I read recently that said the flowers cost more than that, or Peter said that. I don't <laughs> think they did. I mean, you know, <laughs> with all due respect, um, <laughs> Joe F. Grave uh, was uh, paid around £25 um, for his drum, and uh, he did two skins for that price, which just absolutely injures my thoughts these days. And one of them just sold for some huge amount of money, too. Oh, over it? a million dollars, yeah. For the uh, cover I, uh, of the album, yeah. for the drum cover that's on the album. Yeah, and it's been reproduced forever, and Joe never, ever signed a waiver on that. Everybody who appears on the cover uh, had to sign a waiver to use their face, and neither Joe or I signed a waiver. I didn't sign a waiver on my, um, my figures, um, and he didn't on the drum. And yet, I mean, his drum has been reproduced a million times. Um, and uh, so that's lamentable. It's like the inventor invents something and then never really gets credit for it. Um, but, um, 
yeah, so, you know, the cost of the cover was, was minimal by today's standards, but um, it seemed that they thought it was a fair amount then. And I wouldn't be surprised if Robert didn't put something into that um, kitty. Also, Michael Cooper, um, I think his son Adam said he wasn't actually sure whether his father ever got paid for the photograph. Um, so, you know, it was it was kind of catch as catch can, you know. Well, tell, um, tell that, that remind, brings up a story about the photograph itself. Maybe it's a little early in the talk, but we might as well do it. The, the, the assistant to the photographer, uh, in, in those Nigel. Da- Nigel, yeah. In those days, they had a long cord, and um, the, the, the photographer would be looking through the camera, and his assistant would have the long cord and click it, or do I have it backwards? I'm not... Uh, yeah, I suppose that would be one way. The other thing is the assistant standing right on the camera and depressing the the button, yeah. um, whether it's a long cord or not. But but you know, it was explained to me by someone when someone I know challenged uh, Nigel's interpretation is that oh well, he says quote I actually pressed the button on the very shot that they used for Sergeant Pepper, um, implying um, that he took the photograph and he then went on to say. Michael was too out of it on heroin to actually be compass mentis. Well, I would debate that uh, and I'll also defend Michael's uh, reputation on that. He was a great photographer, as, as his photographs uh, attest. And, um, and then, you know, the idea, the setup, I mean, the photographer was, who, who, you know, talked to me about this said, well, it's very customary to, you have your assistant press the button when you say so. You are not looking through the camera because it, it would, you know, it's a distortion. You, you, the photographer, are standing there looking at the setup saying, okay, Paul, move a little to the left and tilt your head up. And John, could you look down more and put the instrument a little bit more in, uh, in, in, into your body? Um, so you are directing the photograph. Your assistant is then told, now, 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 press you know so yeah. so like that and so to claim to claim authorship of a photograph is mean um but it's also destructive and negative to imply that um michael wasn't was incapable of taking it. and then it, he he does go further and kind of nudges that um oh no he did all the staining of the heads and oh my god i mean i had and that's you what know, you did uh, yeah, yeah. I had I had orange fingers for a month after that, you know. So I kind of know I did it <laughs> anyway. So it, it it's one of those post things that I I mean some I'm not even saying that people think they're lying. I don't think they know that they've told the story so many times, claimed authorship of some aspect, and and as is Paul. I mean he's he's claiming that you know Peter didn't think of this, he thought of it, you know, and um, so. It's um, it, it's sad and tedious and unnecessary, and, you know, uh, <laughs> it's the way things go sometimes. It certainly seems that way. Listen, uh, Jan, I'm speaking with Jan Haworth. She's in Salt Lake City. She is the uh, co-designer and uh, did a lot, a lot, a lot, I'm underlining a lot, uh, of the work on this album. We'll be back and talk to her in just a couple of moments. We've got to take a quick break, so please stand by. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the cover and my my own personal work um, 
pretty much um, rounds on the surrealism of Hollywood, and um, certainly that invaded the sense of how we approached the cover, that Peter wanted to do it as a collage, um, which was the way he normally worked, um, and I wanted to do it as a set um, so that the Beatles could walk on life-size people, you know, standing there. And the conceit that I'd seen, you know, a lot of times uh, in my father's sets was that uh, you had a two-dimensional um, something, a house or a, a cutout of a person, um, and that in front of that, you would mask the, the kind of falseness of that with three-dimensional or bas-relief um, uh, kind of, what would you call it, an elide or a bandage um, at the front. And so the idea of doing this, I mean, I'd seen it on The Longest Day, I'd seen it on Some Like It Hot, I'd seen it on you know a lot of films that my dad did. Um, and um, so the other thing is that to save expense, you um, can do um, black and white photographs and uh, blow them up to life size and then stain them to look a little bit more um, as if they're, you know, color photographs. Um, my dad happened to be in town at the time, and so I, I you know, con consulted directly with him, and he gave me the name of the people that could blow them up and cut them out and do all of that. And he was working on a film called Half a Sixpence and, in fact, used a, a, a set of gallopers, a, a roundabout merry-go-round that Joe F. Grave um, put him in touch with and that Joe had decorated. So Half a Sixpence has another piece of Joe F. Grave's work in it. Um, so, you know, that was all kind of tied in a circle. And the other thing was that I didn't really want a graphic designer imposing lettering on the cover. I wanted us to be able to control what the lettering was. So the idea of the drum skin being the uh, name of the album and the Beatles um, kind of title thing being in flowers was something that rose. Um, there was a, a, a garden uh, uh, what do you call it, a civic garden just down the road from where Peter and I lived that was the model for the um, the Beatles in flowers. So um, all of that kind of derived from the, the area that I was working in. I had been doing little books that were, you know, lettering made out of other things. Um, so it was those kinds of ideas um, that were present there. And Peter was very much, you know, make, make a whole bunch of um, things come together in a collage so the idea of a crowd and, and the Beatles choosing their heroes, that was very much his, his territory on the cover. And as I say, it rises directly out of his work and my work in that regard. So, yeah. so now all of these faces on here, uh, I, I believe what I've read and what I've talked to you about is that you, you asked the Beatles to give you some names of people they would like to be on the cover. And uh, some of them did, some of them didn't, some of them went in one direction, some went in the other. Tell us that story. Well, um, they chose about, I don't know, 36, 37 percent of the heads that are on there, and Peter and I filled in the rest because their choices didn't made a rather thin crowd. <laughs> so we thought we'd have some more things in there. They didn't choose any women, so I went to town on that in later years and other projects, which I hope we'll get to. But... Um, uh, so yes, we will. They, fleshed, they fleshed out some of their notions. I mean, George um, was very much involved um, in um, India at that point, and so we had a little clutch of what we called George's gurus. Um, and then um, John, you know, gave us quite a few heads, um, and as did Paul. Uh, Ringo, as I remember, only gave us two. Um, and I know the first one was Izzy Bond, but I don't know what the second one is. Was and who? He now says uh, Izzy Bond. He was a music hall um, kind of character. 
Um, and um, I think he picked another one, but I can't remember what it was. He says he didn't do any at this point, or at least that he was quoted as that somewhere. Um, but um, poll, uh, polls were pretty straightforward, but uh, John's came in for some uh, problem because he problems he chose jesus christ and, and hitler and uh, both of those we had to edit out um so <laughs> that was how um, come that doesn't surprise me <laughs> well i i know but it, it you know it resonates in a very uncomfortable way just at the moment and i think um you know being facetious was something john did rather well but he also goofed it up from time to time and that i think could be said of that kind of choice. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Alistair uh, Crowley. Yeah, and that was John's as well. Um, yes. Uh, interesting. And I guess there were two versions that got cut out. One was much more kind of looking like a sorcerer when Alistair Crowley was young, and another one um, that was uh, an older version of him. Uh, had I known what I know now about Alistair Crowley, I think I would have had um, misgivings about including him. But um, yeah, you know, it was, I don't know, you can, you can hear in the Beatles interviews, sometimes they're foolishly young um, in, in their responses, and um, I sometimes wonder about that. I wonder if it was based on kind of defensive, um, you know, behavior, because in England, accents matter so much, so if you only give a monosyllabic answer to something, or something very quick and short... It, it disguises your your you know class origins and people were sensitive about that then um, could be that that was something that um, that made them think twice about how they answered questions. So um, with all of these choices, some of them very odd, some of them you would expect, but some of it like like Shirley Temple three times appears on this yeah, cover. That's that's Peter and me. We have to take full responsibility. <laughs> folly. Um, can I say it was the folly of youth? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> or, sure. Or possibly preparation for um, having a child, maybe. Uh, she's ever so cute kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the three times uh, really makes me wince now because there were only 12 women on the cover, and um, that makes it a, a quarter of the women. That's Shirley Temple three times, three out of the 12, you know. Um, and um, the other, and five or six of them are kind of fictional characters, pinups, and um, dress it, uh, makers, dummies, uh, head, you know, wax heads. Who are so the twelve? Can you still remember? Oh yeah, um, there's two wax uh, heads that you know were supposed to hold up hats in a window display. Um, three Shirley Temples, two Petty Girls, a Vargas Girl. So all those are fictional. Um, Marlena Dietrich, um, Marilyn Monroe, and uh, Diana Doors. I don't know if I've got to 12. And my grandmother. Um, that was um, the <laughs> figure that I made that's on the right-hand side. What's her, what's her number in the, in the map? Sorry? Oh, oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the map, just... Oh, okay. And, and then there's, you can see the hair of... Um, of Queen Elizabeth I, I think, but I, I can't really count that. And what about Mae West? Oh, Mae West, yes. And there's a story um, there, too. Yeah, and that's, that, you know, that was certainly, you know, important to me. I've done a lot of sculptures about, about Mae West. Well, tell them the story about what happened with Mae West. Oh, yeah, well, she, like everyone else, um, received a, a telegram and or a letter to say, will you allow us to use your 
head on the cover, and uh, she looked at it and saw that it was called Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band, and she said, what would I be doing in a Lonely Hearts Club? <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Mae West. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they had to... Uh, they had to write to her and, and so forth. Um, but, I mean, it was, you know, was, I remember that, too, as being a very last-minute thing. I, the story is told that EMI said right from the beginning that it was a, you know, you had to get permission. Well, I think that's nonsense because, you know, we um, were able to take Leo Gorsi off of it because he wanted money. So the photograph had been taken by the time anybody thought of, oops, you know, this could all go <laughs> under because if somebody objects to, you know, having this. That, that's why, like, I think Leo Gorsi is, is, tw- is number 12 in the map, and, it's, and he gets an asterisk because uh, his picture isn't really there. <laughs> they took yeah, it out, so yeah. it's a, one of those blank spots. But there's a couple of blank spots. Are those people that were removed, like, between 8 and 9? A, a yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think um, that other blank spot... I never. I don't have any recollection of Jesus Christ being nailed up there. That's uh, unfortunate, isn't it, to say that? <laughs> um, and um, but I think um, there is a gap to the uh, between Red Astaire and uh, Edgar Allan Poe, if I'm remembering cor- correctly. Um, and I don't know if there was somebody in there. I'm not sure about that. Uh, certainly, the Gorsi's gap is is very prominent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, there, there may have been another head that we removed, um, you know, sort of at the last minute. Um. Now, some people came and put things on the set, you told me, that weren't there the night before they were going to take the picture, but showed up and, and some of it was left in. Uh, well, uh, I'm not sure when the T-shirt showed up on the Shirley Temple doll that I made. Um, uh, you know, that, that just appeared, and I thought, well, that, you know, we'll just leave that. That's fine. That was the Rolling um, Stone t-shirt, right? Yeah, yeah, so that. And um, then the Beatles, I think, brought a couple of things in quite late. Uh, um, if I remember correctly, I think uh, the little television set was um, Ringo's. Um, and I think there was another little something that was added in, you know, those, those sort of props that are at the bottom. Um but yeah, I mean, it, it was kind of um, marginally casual. I mean, it, you know, there there is wasn't much of that, and most of it is, is well, ninety nine percent of it is just as we left it. Um, well, those little little side stories are always so interesting on this thing. <laughs> There's the other rumor that the the plants there was all was all uh, cannabis. No, no. No, I, I know it wasn't. I'm but sure that it would have been used. <laughs> 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 it <was. laughs> would have been a stack of roaches laying there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of stripped out like a caterpillar had been in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the guy who designed the drum cover, mm-hmm. uh, what was his name? Joe F. Grave. And he, saw, he was a, a famous guy at the time, right, in the art world? Well, not really. I mean, he was a fairground painter living in a caravan at Beach's uh, yard. Beach's were showmen, and they had uh, fairground equipment that they toured around England every summer. Um, they holed up in the winter and the rain in this, um, you know, caravan yard and he had a sort of shed that he restored um you know paint jobs on gallopers um and that was that was his his role he did a a lovely signage for me um on a shop in uh, carnaby street and he did two wardrobes and a hall stand for me um you know as furniture in in my house which i have some photographs of um but um yeah i mean he he was 
you know, a working um, fairground painter and an absolute master of the arts uh, of, you know, gold leaf and lining and, uh, you know, so like, uh, I mean, I, I used to work on a, a magazine in uh, Hollywood. It was called Car Craft and Cart. Uh, it was Peterson Publishing. And uh, I, uh, I was, you know, just a typist. And um, uh, one of the things I used to type up was, you know, how you did striping on your car. I think there was somebody who was the god of that called Van Dyke. Yes, and, uh, yes. Uh, Van Dyke was familiar to me, but Joe would have knocked the socks off of Van Dyke, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a break here real quickly. Any other mo- stories about the, uh, the, uh, the, the cover that uh, are sort of unique that you don't get to tell very often that we can pass on to the audience? Oh, well, I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I mean, you know, the, the last minute uh, Madame Tussauds um, influx of, of the front row waxworks and the hysterical um, Beatles standing beside the Beatles, because, I mean, the, the waxworks from Tussauds, they just look like completely different people. <laughs> it's just it's pretty funny. Yeah, um, they, they really yeah. do. When you look at it, it looks like they were maybe their <laughs> second cousins or something, yeah, tw- exactly. twice removed. Yeah, kind of incarnates or or zombies. Well, we'll come back in just about three, four minutes here after we have this break. An, uh, an alternate take of Sgt. Pepper, but there were no alternate takes of the album cover. The designer of that album cover, Jan Haworth, is with us on the line. And uh, Jan, while we, while we were off the air, I was looking at the list, and I've got to comment on one more, then we'll move off of all of these people. But you have put one of my huge heroes in that, was Lenny Bruce. How, who picked him, and how did he get in there? Oh, I would say that was John, probably. Um yeah, hard I, to remember I, each 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 yeah, and every pick, but, but right? N- it's not a Polish choice, I don't think. Um, much more likely to be him, and and not really Peter, and not not me, not for any you know judgmental reason, but just um, yeah. Um, and I, Len Bruce was in Soho uh, when I was a student, playing at the Establishment Club, I think. Um, and it was a gig that we went to and couldn't get in. <laughs> oh, I got to see him twice up in San Francisco back in those days. Yeah. Anyway, now um, you, the album is out, and it's a huge, huge hit. It's become the most iconic album cover of all time, and you made about $200 originally. How much more did you make off of the album after it became such a huge hit and everybody was making millions of dollars? Well, I, uh, zero, actually. <laughs> but but let's, let's come to that. I mean, you said uh, uh, there's no alternate covers. Uh, there are alternate versions. Um, I'd just like to draw attention to the fact that um, 
uh, the thing that's really funny about the Sgt. Pepper is, in, in a way, it's like an interactive. Um, it's like a kind of cardboard version <laughs> of VR or something, you know, that you you interact with it by figuring out who's on there and so forth. And the the kind of format of that um, has been used again and again, um, from, you know, Frank Zappa to uh, a collection of colonoscopy doctors who did a cover of all colonoscopy doctors, and then it said colonoscopy and flowers at the bottom. Oh, God. Anyway, so, so, you know, the idea of the format of that kind of morphing and transforming over and over again, I think it's hilarious and also... Um, you know, it's kind of, uh, it, it might demonstrate something of the chameleon character of the original setup, which I think is sort of interesting. But going back to the, the money part of it, I mean, I, I, I view it really as a calling card, uh, only insofar as um, then people will actually listen to something you might have to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I happen to design the Sgt. Pepper cover. You want to hear something now else? Talk, <laughs> yeah, now let me talk to you about something that matters, <laughs> which is not bad. <laughs> but you did win uh, an award. I did. I got the Grammy, and um, I let my children play with it, as mothers do, and it went outside and lived in a little cabin and, and kind of melted and came apart. Aww. and. Uh, it came off the base, and the dog chewed on the wood because that was good. And um, so I have it in a bag, um, <laughs> in several pieces. <laughs> I love it. I really wouldn't change it for a brand new one because I—it's like an old teddy bear, you know. Oh, it's that's sort of, fabulous! It, it shows—it shows the love. <laughs> <laughs> so you have taken now. Let's let's move into Jan Haworth today. And thank you for talking about this. This is such a fascinating topic to us Beatle fans. I know you're not the biggest Beatle fan of all time, but there <laughs> there's a lot of us out here are just fascinated with this. And this has been some great background on what has become one of the most iconic albums of all time, and has affected your whole life. Well, yeah, and I and I think actually, you know, um, the nature of an artist is to look at what people people consider an icon. I mean, I don't per personally consider it an icon, but people do, and to tear it apart. And I think that you know the the notion of um, something like that to sort of look at it and say, okay, or how do we transform this, or what's wrong with it? And and I did that in. You know, 2003, I sat down with a cover because Rolling Stone had said the album, that's meaning the music, not the cover, was the greatest album of all time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I wanted to do an analysis of that to see how many women, how many, uh, you know, people from African, uh, of African-American origins, how much ethnic diversity, etc., did the cover represent, and found it woefully lacking, um, which stimulated an idea to do a mural in Salt Lake City, um, uh, that was a correction of the original and to identify people who were catalysts for change. Um, and the idea there was social change and how far had we come since 1967. And so that, that mural emerged um, in a couple of months um, on a wall um, in Salt Lake, and it's huge. I mean, it's like 38 feet long and 27 feet high or something like that. Um, and um, the Beatles don't appear. They're just a silhouette um, of um, uh, breeze blocks. What do you call them? Cinder blocks. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so the idea of kind of the original cover, as it should, I think, be questioned, um, drove a notion to say, well, let's review this and let's, let's see what you know, we might do with that idea and take it to a different platform. 
Um, and so that, that stills up. And somebody asked me the other day an interesting question. They said, uh, so why Salt Lake? And I, I kind of was taken aback by that a little bit, thinking, uh, yeah, why? And um, it was partly, obviously, because I, I was living uh, in Sundance at the time. But it was more than that, really, because um, the space of Salt Lake kind of offered something that it really couldn't have been done anywhere else. A, I wouldn't have got a look in um, to say, okay, I really would like to do this mural on Broadway in New York. <laughs> I think I would have stood a chance 